All right, this morning we are in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So if you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 845. That'll bring you to Mark chapter 10. And we're actually, this is a two-part sermon, meaning that we started in this text last week. So this is part two of the sermon. And inside of your bulletins on the left-hand side is an outline, and we're actually covering point two this morning. We covered point one last week. If you weren't here last week, I can't repeat the whole message due to time. I would encourage you just to, because I said some things that were kind of critical and important in that message, that you would maybe go online and you can download the message and listen to it there to get the full message of Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. So this morning we're going to consider, just like we were doing last week, two very different views on marriage. Two very different views on marriage so that we might know and embrace what God has purposed for a husband and a wife. Last week, I discussed, as I said, the first point, which is marriage, or the first view, marriage was not designed to endure till death. It wasn't designed to endure or last till death. It appears to have been held by many people in Jesus' day, and unfortunately, it is a view, it is the view, that is widely accepted in our time as well. In the message last Sunday, I actually commented on the phrase that is familiar to many of us who have been married. It's uh, one of these promises we make, until death do us part. You familiar with that phrase? Until death do us part, or as long as we both shall live. And I noted that this noble promise and commitment has been broken and left unfulfilled by a great number of husbands and wives. One source that tracks divorce in America says the rate of divorce for a first marriage and I know you've probably heard it's 50%, but they think it's closer to 41%. No, I mean, that is an improvement over 50, but it's still tragic. 41%. For a second marriage, the rate of divorce is 60%. And for a third marriage, it's 73%. The cold, hard reality, beloved, is divorce has impacted all of us, and we are all too familiar with it. And even last week, I told you, or I asked you to raise your hand if your parents have been divorced or you've been divorced or you've married a divorced person or your adult children have divorced. And I I would say a majority of us in here raised our hand. Probably now would be a good time to say this too. Listen to the whole message, okay? Especially, I said this last week, but for those of you who are here this week and you didn't hear last week, listen to the whole message. Don't shut down. Don't turn off. Divorce has impacted a lot of us. So if you've been divorced or you're remarried or you're married the fourth time or whatever, wherever you find your place right now, you are not alone. You are not alone. But listen to the message and let's see if we can. And I won't answer every potential or possible question that comes out of this. I think those are better directed on a one-on-one situation because that allows you, if you have questions after this, you can talk to me, you can ask me, I'd love to talk with you, but it allows us to have a conversation. Otherwise, I'm just talking and you can't say what? You could, but it would be very distracting to the rest of us. (laughs) So I was thinking, maybe we should just change the wedding vows, make them a bit easier to keep. What do you think? I read one story, it goes like this, I found this amusing. During the wedding rehearsal, the groom approached the pastor with an unusual offer. Look, I'll give you $100 if you change the wedding vows. When you get to the part where I'm supposed to promise to love, honor, obey, and, and be faithful to her forever, I'd appreciate it if you just left that out. He passed the minister a $100 bill and walked away satisfied. On the day of the wedding, when it came time for the groom's vows, the pastor looked the young man in the eye and said, Senior, you already know where this is going, don't you? Will you promise to prostrate yourself before her? That means bow low. Obey her every command and wish. Serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life. And swear eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will not ever even look at another woman as long as you both shall live. <laughs> The groom gulped, looked around, and said in a tiny voice, Yes. Then leaned toward the pastor and hissed, I thought we had a deal. The pastor put a $100 bill into the groom's hand and whispered, She made me a better offer. (laughs) 
There are a lot of things wrong with that story. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. So this week, we're, we're going to focus on the second view, which is marriage was not designed to end through divorce. Marriage was not designed to end through divorce, and we're going to finish this section of Mark. The question I'm trying to ask and answer is, is marriage supposed to be a permanent union or not? It's that simple. Is marriage supposed to be a permanent union or not? That really is the question I'm dealing with, and I believe it is the one that Jesus was dealing with and trying to answer in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So like I said, this text does not deal with every question about marriage and divorce. It doesn't. It simply doesn't. But I think it does deal specifically with that question. So, if you're not there, turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verse 1. We'll read the entire passage again. Page 845 in those blue Bibles. And just follow me as I read along from God's Word. It says, And he, that is Jesus, with his disciples, left there, the area of Galilee, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That's the text. Last week we looked at the first view, which is marriage was not designed to endure till death. Let me just give a quick, quick review. These Pharisees come to Jesus Christ in order, the text tells us, to test Him, to tempt Him, to to ask him a question that will deliberately put him in a situation where his answer may create conflict or controversy around him and may even cause some of those who were following him to turn away, to no longer follow him. They're hoping that his answer will be contrary to what is acceptable and what is the norm in the culture of their day. Now the question is not just simply... Is marriage or is divorce lawful? But when we look at Matthew 19, which was a parallel or is a parallel passage, in other words, the same story in another gospel, we find out that the real question was, is divorce lawful for any reason? In other words, the common consensus among the people was, we can divorce our wives. And when I say people, men. It was a patriarchal society dominated by men. Women had very few rights. So that's why everything is directed towards the men. The men were divorcing their wives. And, and they were under the impression that they had the right to do so. Now they wanted to know, can we do it for any and every reason? And we talked about the two views that were in the society at the time. One religious leader taught, no, you cannot divorce your wife for any reason. Maybe for something as serious as adultery or a serious breach of the law of God. Maybe in that case... The other school taught you can divorce her for any reason at all. And this all stems from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and their interpretation, poor interpretation of that passage. And when I say divorce her for any reason at all, that included in their context a woman burning the man's meal, or, if that wasn't bad enough, even if she didn't look as good to him as another woman looked. This is where we were in the culture. Not much different than ours. Now, they were under the assumption that somehow Moses was endorsing or giving them the okay to divorce their wives. That was wrong. From that text and from even Matthew 19 where Jesus specifically says that yes, Moses did permit you to divorce your wives. He specifically says that. 
He says he did it because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, it was a concession that was made. And specifically, it has to do with this certificate of divorce that we believe Moses was telling them they had to write. And there were reasons for that. It helped make sure that the man had to put in writing so that everyone knew exactly why he was divorcing his wife. So he couldn't just keep it a secret. He also had to give that to the wife and it gave her the right to remarry. So that when he, she came to the next spouse, there could be no accusations that it was for this or for that. We know what it was for. It was written down. So in a sense, it was designed to protect the weak of society, which would have been the women, and even to create a hindrance against divorce, to make them think twice. But in no way and no how was Moses endorsing or promoting divorce. It's kind of like... I. And I'll just say this real quick. It's kind of like our laws on public intoxication. Okay, we have, every state has different laws, by the way, on public intoxication. In our state, it is illegal. So if you are drunk and in public, they can arrest you. Now, just because we've made a law in regard to public intoxication does not mean that the state is endorsing private intoxication. Meaning that they are full and supportive of you going home and getting completely wasted. That's not the idea at all. And in fact, at one time in our country, there was prohibition. I don't think anybody, don't think anybody was alive at the time. I don't know. I don't believe it. it's possible, I guess, if someone was alive at the time. But during prohibition, alcohol was outlawed, period. Okay? And they believed at that time it was a burden to society. But guess what? They found out that things just got worse because then the mob and people of that kind of character took over the trade and the business of distributing alcohol and it was actually helping fund their crime wave. So they finally conceded and alcohol became legal again in our country. But that in no way means that drunkenness and even alcohol for that matter is being endorsed. So, in the same sense, just because Moses commanded that they write a certificate of divorce, in no way does that imply or mean that he was for divorce, or that God was for divorce, or that it was even a good thing. But because of the hardness of their hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But they took it to mean that, hey, marriage, it just wasn't designed to last forever, therefore we have divorce, so let's divorce. I think that's the wrong view, beloved, and we talked about that last week. But let's focus on the other view this morning. Marriage was not designed to end through divorce. Look back at the text with me, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. It says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here's Jesus. What he's going to do now is move the discussion and focus from the legalities of divorce to God's original design and intention for the union that we refer to, the union between a man and a woman, that we refer to as marriage. To do that, Jesus went all the way back to the beginning of creation which is recorded in the first book of the law. Okay, The book or the law of Moses is a book that contains five books that we're familiar with. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the five books. The books of law, the Torah, the books of Moses. They are the instruction book for the people of Israel. He now goes back to the very first book. Now remember, the controversy, part of the controversy surrounding this whole situation was a text in Deuteronomy 24, we believe. 24, 1 through 4. Moses wrote that. It's part of the law. So since they want to quote Moses, Jesus goes back to a book that Moses also wrote. The book of the law in Genesis. And he establishes his position on marriage from that book, from the Word of God. He quotes, God made them male and female. Where do we find that? It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to look at a few passages in Genesis. 
Turn back to Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. If you're in your blue Bibles, it's page one. It's page one. To understand Jesus' references, we need to understand the creation story. So, God made them male and female. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so you can see the entire passage that he's quoting from. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him, created him, male and female, he created them. This phrase, male and female, these words, male and female, he created them, is not a general reference to the two different sexes of humanity, but is referring specifically to the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. The specific details of Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them, are revealed for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 25. 7 through 25. The way God formed this couple, Adam and Eve, and brought them together should be considered by us to understand Jesus' reason for this reference. Now, the Pharisees would have been familiar with the entire text of Genesis, let alone Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They knew the law. They were experts in the law. So all Jesus had to do was make a reference and they understood the story that he was referring back to. But for us, sometimes we miss it because we are not as familiar, familiar as we should be with the creation narrative or story. So let's look back now at the details of he made them male and female, specifically Adam and Eve. So just flip over to chapter 2, verse 7. And we're just going to look at a few passages here. Genesis 2.7. Now here are the details. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Just a, just a fun side note here. God now brings this woman that he has made to the man. Uh, many people believe, I'm not sure it's the case, but many people believe that the reason we have this uh, tradition in weddings where the, the father brings down the daughter to be united with the groom is from here. That they're patterning, they're, they're patterning after, they're doing it after this pattern where God now brings the woman to the man and gives her to him to be united. Kind of interesting. Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Eve, beloved, in a very unique sense, in a very unique sense, was one with Adam. One with Adam. Since God chose to make her from Adam. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is how Adam refers to his woman, Eve. And I believe it's worth noting that God did not make Eve the same way that He made Adam. Not from the dust of the ground, but beloved from the very body of Adam. God made her according to the text, and brought her to Adam in order to complement and complete Adam. A helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18 A helper fit for him. A perfect, united couple. 
To deny that God made Adam and Eve to be together, to deny that, and remain together as an inseparable unit would be absolutely impossible to support from the facts of the creation story that we find in Genesis chapter 2. You just have no support to deny the reality that God made them and intended them to be together and remain together under the circumstances He literally took from Adam His rib, His flesh, and from that made the woman that would be His perfect counterpart, His helper, fit for Him. And even Adam refers to Him as this woman as flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. By the way, beloved, it is in that context, that passage, that we read the second passage that Jesus references in Mark chapter 10. So look back at the text in Genesis. Stay in Genesis. We've just read this whole story. Now Genesis 2.24 comes into the play. And now it makes sense. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, because of this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. The way God brought Adam and Eve together, beloved, provided a definition and pattern for all future marriages. The implication is that marriage involves one male and one female becoming specifically one flesh. In other words, you no longer have two separate individuals, but one indivisible unit. Indivisible. You know, we use that word, well, we used to when we said the pledge on a regular basis, but I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the country for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible. The idea there is there are 50 states that make up this great union, but they cannot be divided. They are one, one nation, and they shall not be divided. That's the idea. Indivisible. The idea of someone turning the one one flesh, back into two, is impractical, hazardous, and contrary to the original intent God had for a married couple. The permanency of such a union, that is, remaining as one flesh, is really, beloved, when we look at it, the only sensible and appropriate expectation since, and listen, since the existence of two separate and distinct individuals has in a sense ceased to exist due to the nature of the sacred union. So here's my prop. I did this because the kids would be in here today, so I thought they would appreciate it, Jason. Man. Woman. Aww. But God's going to bring them together in this sacred union we call marriage. Okay? And they are going to become one flesh. Not two different balls of Play-Doh, but one very beautiful, wonderful... <laughs> this feels so good, man, I'm telling you. I was doing this last night. It's good stress releasing you. I'm serious. Look at this. Now, I'm going to ask you a question here. Can you separate the red and blue anymore? Really? Can you? you? I, well, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think you can. I tried. I tried to see if this actually works out. You might be able to get parts of the blue and the red, you know. But you cannot separate the two. Why can't you separate them? Because they have been brought together. And they were never intended to be separated. When we pursue divorce, it is ridiculous as trying to separate the red and blue brought together in a ball of Play-Doh. You can't ever really separate it. And what ends up happening is, as these two become one flesh, you, you don't even see red and blue anymore. Because it becomes a single color. I know, it's like magic, I know. 
I have another show at one. I, I um, just keep an eye on that. The story of Adam and Eve, beloved, make the instructions, the statement of Genesis 2.24, comprehensible, understandable. A man must separate himself from his father and mother in order to be attached completely to his wife. Hold fast to his wife is what the text says, which literally means be glued to her. Be glued to her. And they never intended some type of cheap glue. Gorilla glue. You know what I'm talking about? Or super glue. That's the kind of glue we're talking about here. Be glued to her. Now let me ask you a question. Does a person typically, I know there's always exceptions, but does a person typically glue stuff together with the intentions of ripping it apart in the future? No. That's not your purpose. Why would you bring the two together and bond them together so that later we can rip them apart? And you know as well as I know that when you attempt to do that because you made a mistake or something like that, it usually destroys both pieces to some degree to try to pull them back apart again. You glue stuff together, beloved, to stay together. That's why you glue stuff together. That's why I glue stuff together. Why do you think God glues two people together? The two pieces become one, which is exactly what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 8. Look at the text again. Mark chapter 10, verse 8, page 845. So he says all this and he says, Listen, and the two shall become one flesh. And just in case you missed it, he says again, So they are no longer two, but one. One flesh. One writer says it this way, the two form one complete whole, one flesh. Accordingly, their marriage is not a business partnership that may be dissolved at will, but a union of two lives fused into one. They now form a unit, each forming part of the very existence of the other. Each forming a part of the very existence of the other. How do you separate stuff that no longer exists in individual parts, but has now merged into one unit or piece? How do you do that? You don't. You don't even consider it. You know why? Because you no longer look at it as separate parts. You no longer see this as red and blue. You, you see it differently. One new unit. One flesh. So the idea would even be considered or should not be considered. But if you still view it as two separate units, then I guess it's reasonable to think we can divide those apart. See, the way you view marriage impacts the way you treat marriage and how much you will be willing to consider divorce when marriage gets ridiculously tough, which it does. Jesus finished his point, beloved, with a sobering reality and prohibition. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 10, verse 9. And remember I said, I read Mark 8, I believe, this morning, and we talked about Jesus saying, whoever is ashamed of my words in the sinful generation, I will be ashamed of them when I return with my holy angels. These are Jesus' words. I am, these are not Jeremy's words. They're not a religion's words. These are the words of Christ recorded in the Bible. They're His words. So consider that. Mark 10.9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Those are his words. To say it another way, don't even think about messing with what God has glued together. To his audience, the message was clear. You know what, guys? 
You're up here in my face asking me, can we divorce our wives for any reason? You're trying to use Moses to justify your actions? You really have no right to be divorcing your wives. That's what he's saying. You have no right. By continuing to pursue divorce, you place yourself in direct opposition to God because you seek to rip apart what God has put together. That's what he's saying. Jesus made his view on marriage abundantly clear. Marriage was and is not designed to end through divorce, period, end of story. And the fact that divorce was a present day reality and is today didn't change Jesus' position or the truth about God's intention for marriage. Beloved, if, this, if Jesus was a politician, he would have taken polls first before he answered the question. He would have gotten out of the question. So let me get back to you on that. Then he would have ran a poll and he would have seen, you know, what does the public think? And then they would have come back with, well, the public is actually for divorce, Jesus. Okay. So then he'd come back and he'd give them some ridiculous answer that appeased them. But Jesus is not a politician. Jesus is the Son of God. He cannot lie. He speaks forth for God. When He speaks, it is as if God is speaking. So all He can do is speak the truth. Not in some harsh way. Not to hurt people. But beloved, the truth is what really helps people. It really does. So Jesus spoke the truth. Piper says this, one pastor I follow on occasion. Jesus is saying, quote, marriage is God's idea. He designed it, he described it, and he does it. It is one of the deepest realities in the world, deeper than any of us knows. What God joins together, He joins deeply together. Deeper than feelings, deeper than promises, deeper than sex, deeper than friendship. One flesh is a deep, deep mystery. That's how Paul refers to it in Ephesians chapter 5. It is an ocean of deep, deep, unseen wonders. Yet many people today treat it like a backyard swimming pool for lounging around as long as we feel like it. Jesus had made His point clear, but His disciples, beloved, it was so clear. His disciples had questions. And I can only speculate about what was going through their mind, but maybe it was something like this. What are you really saying, Jesus? It sounds like you're saying divorce is wrong. Uh, what are you really saying, Jesus? Let me give you another opportunity. Look back at the text, Mark 10.10. 10. And in the house, the disciples asked Him again about this matter. In other words, it wasn't enough. Jesus was clear. He couldn't have been more clear. But, there, but it challenged everything they held to be true. So Jesus responds one more time. And this time it is so black and white, so direct and to the point, it's almost a little overwhelming. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife, remember he's speaking to the men, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And because it was prevalent in society that the women in Greece were also divorcing their husbands, he says, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What? What? The main reason a Jew, by the way, would seek a divorce is to marry again. Okay? This is why they were divorcing. It wasn't like we have so much in our culture where we divorce for a lot of different reasons. But they divorce usually specifically to, to, to have another. But why in the world, though, would Jesus say a divorced person is not free to remarry without being charged with adultery. Why would he say that? Simple. Based on everything we've read, based on the text, the divorce was illegitimate in God's eyes. It's illegitimate. 
And because marriage was meant to be a permanent union, a divorce certificate couldn't change that. End of story. You're still married as far as I'm concerned, so you go off with another, you have committed adultery. Now, there is a parallel passage in Matthew 19 to this passage, Mark 10. And I'll read it for you, Matthew 19.9. You can look at it if you want. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, this is what theologians refer to as the exception clause. The exception clause. It may be just that, an exception clause to God's rule. That is, you can, not must, but you can legitimately divorce your spouse if they have been unfaithful. Because, in one sense, they now have destroyed that sacred union by attaching themselves to another. And even though there can be reconciliation and forgiveness in those things, sometimes it is very, 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 let me not sometimes, it is always very, very, very difficult to deal with a cheating spouse or to forgive them or to continue to live with them. But it's not a mandate that someone were to get a divorce, but we could understand it to be an exception clause. My wife and I have made this very simple for us. There is no exception clause. If she messes around, I will kill her. And if I mess around, she will kill me. And I fear even saying that because 20 years from now, right, if something happens, not that anything like that would happen, honey, but if something were to happen, they'll be, see, he said he would kill his wife and then I'll go to jail for the rest of my life. I know that's what I'll... But no, it's obviously it's a joke. Kind of. Um... <laughs> But yeah, there's just no way. I couldn't, I, I don't know. My wife and I are so bound together, it would be so disruptive, uh, I'd lose my mind. She would lose her mind. So that could be an exception clause, beloved. But here's the deal. It does not change the fact. It doesn't change the fact of God's original intention. It doesn't change the fact that in Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. Hey, it's not the only thing He hates. Go to Proverbs 6.16. There's several things there he hates, beginning with a proud look. Okay, so it's not like this is exalted above all the other sins and this is worse. But we, we're just talking about this right now. God hates divorce. Why would he hate it so much? Why would he even dedicate a passage specifically to say just that? I hate divorce. Because it goes against his original intention for marriage, it seeks to divide what he has brought together in a sacred union, making the two one flesh. This truth, beloved, that Jesus is laying on his disciples is what caused his surprise men to say in Matthew 19.10, now I'm in Matthew 19.10, which is the parallel verse, verse listen to what they say. This this is so understandable why they would say this. If such is the case of a man with his wife, if what you're saying is true, Jesus, it's just simply better not to marry. They, got, they understood. They got it. If we've had it wrong all this time, then it sounds like it would be better to just remain single. Because you know what, Jesus? This sounds way too heavy. Way too strict. Way too radical. But of course, remember, this is the same Jesus that says, listen, if you seek to gain your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and live for me. It's the same Jesus saying this. This is a call to what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not an average standard. It's not a low standard. It is the highest standard. In a culture, beloved, where divorce is a common occurrence, Jesus' statements really may, like I said, seem radical or severe. But, but make no mistake, that doesn't make them any less true. Isn't that what we're, we're searching for? Isn't that what we're trying to seek out when we come here on Sunday morning? The truth. And I'll tell you, the truth is sometimes very difficult to take. 
to swallow, to come under, to submit to. Right? You ever see uh, American Idol? And they do the, you know, they bring in all these people and, and they, they think they can sing. And then the judges are harsh, sometimes too harsh, I think. But they tell them, listen, I don't, you need to, you know, they ask them, oh, I've been getting music lessons for 10 years. And they'll say, you need to go and get your money back because that was just atrocious. That was terrible. My mama has always told me how good I sing. Like, your mama's been lying to you. You can't sing a lick, right? And it's amazing how they continue to reject. Everyone knows, everyone hearing them knows the truth. You, you really, you, you can't sing. You should do something else. But you can't sing. It's just not, you don't have it. And they continue to refuse it. Have you seen that? And you go, wow. They just won't listen. See, don't do that. Don't do that with God's Word. Listen to this. And I think this will be helpful as we try to conclude this section here. I like what this writer says. He says, The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not trying to lay guilt trips on people who have failed, got a divorce, gotten another divorce, got remarried. He's not doing that. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The answer to that question is assured in Mark chapter 3, verse 28, where Jesus also says, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. Will be. And that assumes, beloved, that we have placed our faith in the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ when He was nailed to the cross and suffered for all of our sins. If we've placed our faith in that, put our hope and confidence in that, you bet you can be sure of and confident in the fact that every sin has been forgiven. The question though, beloved, in our day of temporary commitment and casual divorce is whether we as Christians now, that's what we're talking about and that's who I'm talking to, Christians, we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. Okay, we are not disciples for Jesus Christ in a vacuum or in a particular area of our lives. Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ on Sunday. Or I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ in this setting. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means you have surrendered your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your thinking even if it is sinful. You have surrendered it and brought it all, your entire life, under the will and control of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. That is what it means. Now, do you do that perfectly? Certainly not. I don't do it. You don't do it. But we are continuing to fight and battle through the strength of the Spirit to bring ourselves into conformity with what Jesus has said and desires for our lives. So when we get to marriage, it's no different. Is that off the books? We don't have to follow it there? No, I don't think so. In marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, we will we seek, and here's the question, will we seek relief in what is permitted, or will we commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? That's the question. Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty, or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? Will we break apart the divine union of two become one flesh? Or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? Those are the questions. I think this is also helpful too. This is huge. I read this and I thought, wow, this guy nailed it. And listen, I'll quote him. While proclaiming God's will for marriage, which is what we've been doing for the last 30 minutes or so, we should recognize that one cannot restore a failed marriage with the prohibition of divorce. Jesus teaches that God does not will divorce, but that does not solve the hardness of heart problem. 
The church in the past has applied Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage with legalistic severity that it suspends when it comes to his other sayings. So let me explain this in, in another way. Some preacher will get up and rah, 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 you know, just hammer away, okay, about divorce and marriage. And people will just be, you know, right? But then they're not as strong when it comes to like gossip, unforgiveness, unkindness, evil speech. They're not as strong in those areas. But divorce, you know, especially if the pastor is not divorced, boy, he can just hammer away. Huh. Here's the issue. Just because the Bible says, listen, divorce is not God's original intention. It's not His design. That's not going to solve your problem if you're in a marriage that's a mess and you're both thinking, man, you pull one more trigger, I'm out of here. You push one more button, I'm filing. Right? No. What solves that, what gets at the heart of that, is a person who has been redeemed and saved by the grace of God who now comes under the Word of God and begins to let the Spirit of God work in their life that they might be able to forgive their spouse, love their spouse, be kind to their spouse, endure even when their spouse is a total jerkhead. Is that okay to say? I'm trying to think, what can I say that's appropriate? Beloved, if there was no sin, okay? If there was no sin and there will be a day when there is no sin. If there was no sin, there would be no divorce. There would be no divorce. Sin is what has messed this up. Has destroyed God's original intention for marriage. You put a man and a woman together in the same house, in the same bed, Eventually, beloved, sparks are going to fly. And I'm not talking about the good kind. Those fly too, but the other stuff. Why does that happen? Sin. Sin. Sin destroys. And the only way we can battle against sin and have any hope of Fulfilling what God originally intended is, is to have the Spirit of God in our lives and to be living that out in our marriages. That's it, guys. And, it, and I know there's some people that are probably not Christians and they've been married for like 60 years or whatever. I know there's people like that, right? Because they, I see them, they'll interview them. They're like, what's the secret to marriage? You've been married for, married for 50 years. But they never talk about Jesus Christ or whatever. Listen, just because you stay married doesn't mean you have a marriage that honors God. Yes, you haven't divorced, and for that, that's fantastic. But you're hating one another and disgusted with one another and are basically roommates. That's not honoring the Lord. That's not what God intended. Man, He brought Adam and Eve together for good. To enjoy one another and to glorify God in every single way. Listen, I, I read this story... I didn't read this story. I heard it from a, a brother. Just as an example of how sin messes things up. This guy was a Christian. He proclaimed to be a Christian. And he knew God's intention for marriage, right? But he also knew about the exception clause. So here's what this man decided to do. He wanted a divorce. So he decided he would just cut his wife off. Now, I know that sounds very strange. And I, that's all I'm going to say, considering the audience we have. But he cut her off. You understand what I'm saying? He cut her off. Usually it's the other way around. But he cut her off. And he told a friend that I'll just continue to do that until she is unfaithful. And when she becomes unfaithful, I'll divorce her. And it'll be okay. Sin, beloved, has messed everything up. It's messed everything up. So... There is forgiveness, right? We sing about it. 
There is forgiveness through the cross for all sin. And maybe there's someone here today who feels convicted and feels like they need to repent and seek that forgiveness for decisions that they have made in the past. And I would encourage that. I would encourage you to do that. Seek the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ in the cross and remove condemnation from your life if you're feeling that in any way. Freedom from the guilt and condemnation that comes with past decisions that were contrary to God's will. But my other point that I want to make before we close is what are you going to do now? We talked about this last week, right? You can't change what's happened in the past. So you've been divorced and now you're remarried and you're divorced and you've remarried or whatever. What are you going to do? Go back? You can't change the past. It's done. And if you're married now, now how do you view marriage? You want to know why the divorce rate is so high with the second and third marriage? It's simple, beloved. The view never changed. How they started off in the first marriage, they took it over into the second marriage. They took that into the third marriage, in the fourth, in the fifth. Still thinking, this is not a permanent union. And when I am tired and worn out by this other person, I am calling it quits. And the consequences of that we know. All, most of us are familiar or have personal knowledge contact with the consequences of the rampant divorce in our society. Beloved, we must fight. Fight! We must fight to hold up the high standards for marriage that God has set. And I said this last week and I think it's worth saying again. God is not a taskmaster. He's not a cruel dictator. If He says, this is my design for you, then if we know God, we say, yes, this is the best. God, I am struggling with this person big time. Let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. But the second divorce becomes an option. It is sometimes easier to say, I don't want any help with that. I'd rather just get out. And God says, if you would stay and let me work, I will do some incredible things in your life. We must hold up the high standards for marriage that God has set, not try to find a way out from under them like that silly man who paid his pastor $100 to change the vows because he thought they were just too difficult to keep. Let's pray.